Part two, chapter six of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part two, chapter six. A fruitless deputation. It was in New Zealand, and I was attending my first conference. I had only a month or two earlier entered the Christian ministry. I dreaded the assembly of my grave and reverend seniors. With becoming modesty, I stole quietly into the hall and occupied a back seat. From this welcome seclusion, however, I was rudely summoned to receive the right hand of fellowship from the president. Then I once more plunged into the outer darkness of oblivion and obscurity. Here I remained until once again I was electrified at the sound of my own name. It seemed that the sorrows of dissension had overtaken a tiny church in a remote bush district. One of the oldest and most revered members, the father of a very large family, and the leader of the little brotherhood, had intimated his intention of withdrawing from fellowship and joining another denomination. This formidable secession had thrown the little congregation into helpless confusion, and an appeal was made to the courts of the denomination. The letter was read, and the secretary stated briefly and succinctly the facts of the situation. And then, to my amazement, he closed by moving that Mr. William Forbury and myself be appointed a deputation to visit the district, to advise the church, and to report to the conference. Mr. Forbury, he explained, was a father in Israel. His gray hairs commanded reverence, whilst his ripe experience and sound judgment would be invaluable to the small and troubled community. So far, so good. His reasoning seemed irresistible. But he went on to say that he had included my name because I was an absolute stranger. I knew nothing of the internal disputes that had rent the church. My very freshness would give me a position of impartiality that older men could not claim. Moreover, he argued, the visit to a bush congregation and the insight into its particular difficulties would be a useful experience for me. I felt that I could not decently decline, but I confidently expected that the proposal would be challenged and probably rejected. To my astonishment, however, it was seconded and carried, and nothing remained but to arrange with Mr. Forbury the date of our delegation." The day came and we set out. It took the train just four hours to convey us to the lonely station from which we emerged upon a wilderness of green bush and a maze of muddy tracks. Mr. Forbury had visited the district frequently and knew it well. We called upon several settlers in the course of the afternoon, taking dinner with one and afternoon tea with another, and then we proceeded to the home of the seceder. The place seemed alive with young people. The house swarmed with children. "'How are you, John?' inquired my companion." "'Ah, William, glad to see you. How are you?' They made an interesting study, these two old men. Their forms were bent with long years of hard and honourable toil. Their faces were rugged and weather-beaten, wrinkled with age and furrowed with care. They had come out together from the homeland years and years ago. They had borne each other's burdens and shared each other's confidences through all the days of their pilgrimage. Their thoughts of each other were mingled with all the memories of their courtships, their weddings, and their earlier struggles.' A thousand tender and sacred associations were interwoven in the mind of each with the name of the other. When fortune had smiled, they had delighted in each other's prosperity. In times of shadow, each had hastened to the other's side. They had walked together, talked together, laughed together, wept together, and, very, very often, prayed together. They had been as David and Jonathan, and the soul of the one was knit to the soul of the other. Hundreds of times, before the one had come to settle in this new district, they had walked to the house of God in company and now a matter of doctrine had intervened. And with such men a matter of doctrine is a matter of conscience, and a matter of conscience is the most stubborn of all obstacles to overcome. I looked into their stern, expressive faces, and I saw that they were no triflers. A fad had no charm for either of them. They looked into each other's faces, and each read the truth. The breach was irreparable. 
We sat in the great farm kitchen until tea-time. I felt it was no business of mine to broach the affairs that had brought us. Several times I thought that Mr. Forbury was about to touch the matter, but each time it was adroitly avoided, and the conversation swerved off in another direction. Once or twice I felt half-inclined to precipitate a discussion. Indeed, I was in the act of doing so when our hostess brought in the tea. A snowy cloth, homemade scones, delicious oatcake, abundance of cream, how tempting it all was, and how unattractive ecclesiastical conversation in comparison. We sat there in the twilight for what seemed like an age, talking of everything under the sun, of everything, that is to say, save the one thing only. And there brooded heavily over our spirits the consciousness that we were avoiding the one and only subject on which we were all really and deeply thinking. After tea came family worship. I was invited to conduct it, and did so. After reading a psalm from the old farm Bible, we all kneeled together, the flickering flames of the great log fire flinging strange shadows on the whitened wall and rafters as we rose and bowed ourselves. I caught myself attempting, even in prayer, to make obscure but fitting reference to that special circumstance that had brought us together. But the reticence of my companion was contagious. It was like a bridle on my tongue. The sadness of it all haunted me and paralyzed my speech, and I swerved off again at every threatened allusion. We sat on for a while, they on either side of the roomy fireplace and I between them, whilst the good woman and her daughters washed up the tea-things. The clatter of the dishes and the babble of many voices made it impossible for us to speak freely on the subject nearest our hearts. At length we rose to go. I noticed on the part of my two aged companions a peculiar reluctance to separate. Each longed, yet dreaded, to speak. There was evidently so much to be said, and yet speech seemed so hopeless. At last our friend said that he would walk a few steps with us. We said good-bye to the great household and set off into the night. I shall never forget that walk. It was a clear, frosty evening. The moonlight was radiant. Every twig was tipped with silver. The smallest object could be seen distinctly. I watched the rabbits as they popped timidly in and out of the great gorse hedgerows. A hare went scurrying across the field. I felt all at once that I was an intruder. What right had I to be in the company of these two aged brethren in the very crisis of their lifelong friendship? No conference on earth could vest me with authority to invade this holy ground. I made an excuse and hurried on, walking some distance in front of them. But the night was so still that even at a distance, had a word been uttered, I must have heard it. I could hear the clatter of hoofs on the hard road two miles ahead. I could hear the dogs barking at a farmhouse twice as far away. I could hear a rabbit squealing in a trap on the fringe of a bush behind us. But no word did I hear, for none was uttered. Side by side they walked on in perfect silence. I once paused and allowed them to approach. They were crying like children. Stern old Puritans, they were built of the stuff that martyrs are made of. Either would have died a hundred deaths, rather than have been false to conscience or to truth or to the other. Either would have died a hundred deaths to save the other from one. Neither could be coaxed or cowed into betraying one jot or tittle of his heart's best treasure and each knew whilst he trembled for himself that all this was true of the other as well side by side they walked for miles in that pale and silvery moonlight not one word was spoken grief had paralyzed their vocal powers and their eyes were streaming with another eloquence they wrung each other's hands at length and parted without even saying good night at the next conference it was the junior member of the deputation who presented the report he simply stated that the delegation had visited the district without having been able to reconcile the differences that had arisen in the little congregation. The assembly formally adopted the report, and the deputation was thanked for its services. It seemed a very futile business, and yet one member of that deputation has always felt that life was strangely enriched by the happenings of that memorable night. 
it puts iron into the blood to spend an hour with men to whom the claim of conscience is supreme and who love truth with so deathless an affection that the purest and noblest of other loves cannot dethrone it end of part two chapter six